if you will, turn to the book of uh, Esther in your Bibles. It's in the Old Testament. It's after Ezra and Nehemiah. The book of Esther. And you can turn to chapter 1 in Esther. Today embarks on an incredible day, okay? And uh, this is usually where probably many pastors across the nation are going to use the podium for political purposes. And uh, we're just not going to do that today, all right? Is that, can I get an amen? All right? All right. Now, within the story of Esther... Are there politics? Yeah, there are. Uh, is it applicable to our life today? Yes, it is. And so you will hear some of those themes. But uh, I've already talked to Dave. I sent him the, uh, the PowerPoint today. And he was like, man, I almost gave you a call. And I was like, don't worry. All right? Uh, but what I want us to really focus on today, let's focus on God's Word. Let's focus on what His Word says. Let's focus on the theology of it. Let's focus on how it applies to our life and how it can change our hearts and how it can change others' hearts. Cool? We good with that? All right. When I was 15 years old, I remember um, I would go visit my cousins up in Hackleburg, Alabama. Y'all ever heard of Hackleburg? Uh, If you had, it might not. Okay, good. I see some shaking of heads. It's a small town. It's on the northwestern side of Alabama. Very small town, and I would go up and visit, and I had a cousin named Chad, and he was a year older than me, and he was 16, and he could drive, and I was 15, and I was like, let's go somewhere, and he had a little pickup truck, and I was like, dude, let's go mud riding, and he's like, I have a two-wheel drive, very small Nissan pickup truck, and I'm like, it'll make it, dude, let's go. It just rained, and so I'm like, we could kill this, man. This is going to be awesome, Uh, and so we we head out, and we find a, a, a dirt road. And we're tearing up that trail. And then there's this huge, like, mud puddle just full of water. And I, was, I looked at Chad, and I'm like, I believe your truck can make this. And I think 15- and 16-year-olds have the best judgment in the world, all right? Because <laughs> he looked at me, and he was like, I know we can make this, you know? And so he gunned it, and we got about halfway through the big mud puddle, and we got stuck. And we tried for hours to get unstuck. And we were covered in mud and wet. And, you know, it was so gross. And I remember asking the question, like, dude, how did we get here? How did we get, how is it that we came to be where we're at right now? Right? And so that was just one of the questions. So y'all turn to Esther chapter 1. This is one of the questions, and this is kind of a bad segue, but this is a question that, that I think God's people need to ask. How is it that we got here? How is it that we, God's people, are still here? Why do we still exist? If y'all have studied history at all, Old Testament, uh, the time when Jesus was born, even into Uh, the early church, into the Middle Ages, how is it that God's people are still here on earth? Um, 
And so we've, there has been difficulties, there's been harsh terrain, mass murders, exiles, silence from God, plots against us, and yet there's still hope. We've been given a hope and promise in God. Uh, in Esther, let me give you an overview of Esther, and maybe this can help uh, define a little bit more and, and clarify more of why is it that God's people are still here. And so Esther, if y'all can look at this. Esther, it's dated around 485 to 464 B.C. This is before Jesus. And uh, King Ahasuerus, all right, I'm going to butcher his name a lot because it's pronounced, it depends on who you're listening to, uh, uh, Ahasuerus, all right, Ahasuerus. Can y'all get that? King Ahasuerus. He was uh, better known, as some scholars believe, as King Xerxes, the Persian king. And to give you a little bit of how the Persian king Xerxes kind of came about, a few years earlier in 586 B.C., the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had conquered a lot of territory and went into Jerusalem and he captured the Jews. And he took them to Babylon into exile. This is 586 B.C. 539 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia conquered Babylon and took over. And so now we have the countries of, of, of Persia and Mede that have taken over and combined their territories. And so I will uh, open us up with Esther chapter 1. Esther 1, and we're going to read like the first 12 verses of, of Esther. Now in the, the days of King Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces in those days... When King Ahasuerus sat on the throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave all the people uh, present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden in the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet, uh, violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple silver rods and marble pillars and all the couches of gold and silver and mosaic pavement of uh, porphyry, porphyry marble mother of pearl and precious stone. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king has given orders and all the staff of the palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti, some people call her Vashti, uh, some people call her Vashti, all right? We'll stick with Vashti. So queen, the queen Vashti, also gave a feast to the women of the palace that belonged to the king Ahuzeris. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded a few of his uh, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of king Ahuzeris to bring queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. 
So as you can tell, this is a lavish feast. You can go to the next slide, and I tried to bring just an old school, you know. So you have the king, and he's laying on the table, and there's all these fine wines and, and foods, and, and, uh, and he invited all the nobles and the governing officials to this feast. And just to kind of give you a modern-day aspect of this, okay, this was part of India, part of Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, and even into northern Egypt. You can even get on like your Google Maps right now and you can look at that area in the Middle East and Persia and media own most of this. That was their territories. And they had a feast and they invited all the nobles and the, and the governing officials from all that territory to come visit and have a feast. And in this feast... The king, Ahuzeres, he decided to invite the queen as she was having her own feast for other nobles, and she refused. And so in his anger, you know, some of the people were in his ear, and he's like, hey, if the queen refuses, what does this mean for all the women? What if all the women start disobeying all the kings of these other areas? Right? And so... He's like, you're right. And so he banished Queen Vashti from ever, uh, he, he basically said, you are no longer queen. And so he had to have a replacement. And so one of the, the officers, he said, hey, how about this? How about we have a beauty contest? And in this beauty contest, we'll, let, uh, we'll, we'll get the most beautiful women from all these territories and we'll bring them to you and you can pick your favorite one to be the new queen. And King Ahuzeres was like, that's a great idea, a beauty contest. And so for a year, they prepared these women. So they prepared them with, with oil and myrrh and all these things and prepared them to be the most beautiful they could over the next year. And they brought one of them named Esther. And along with Esther was her uncle or cousin, and his name was Mordecai. Esther's parents had died when she was young. And so I'll read in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 3. It explains a little bit of Esther. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And I'm, actually, I think I might have wrote that down wrong. Anyway, it was, uh, she was beautiful, and it said that she was very beautiful, and she was very shapely, and she was very pretty on the eyes. That's what this word says. And so she was one of the most beautiful, and so they got Esther, and they brought Mordecai with her, and they prepared her and brought her in front of the king. And King Ahuzeres, he chose Esther to be the new queen, he thought that she was the most beautiful out of all those women. Well, one of the things that these guys were in is they were in exile, the Jews. Remember years earlier with King Nebuchadnezzar, since they had captured him and brought him into exile, they were out of their land. They were out of the Holy Land. They were not in Judah or Israel anymore. They were, you know, around the Babylon, Susa area, in, more in the Middle East than... Uh, than 
uh, Palestine or you know Israel or Jerusalem in that area. And so they were they were in a foreign country. They were believed in a religion which is monotheism, which means one God. And they were surrounded by all these territories and and the king and all these officials who were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. So they were out of their element. And one of the things that Mordecai told Esther, he goes, don't tell him that you're a Jew. Don't tell him about your religion. Just keep quiet about that. And she says, okay, because they were fearful that, that, they, that she might not be chosen or that, you know, that, that uh, it, it wouldn't work out. And so Mordecai gave her a warning. Well, one day Mordecai was sitting out at the king's gate and he overheard this plot to kill the king Ahuzeris. And so Mordecai went to Esther and he's like, there's these two guys planning to kill the king. Go tell the king. So they did. And so the king, he took care of the situation, and it wrote, he wrote it down, and, and he uh, wrote it down in the king's chronicles. And so kind of keep that in mind. Well, in the next chapter, we find Haman. And there was this man named Haman, and he came into power, and he came in to be in power just right under King Ahuzeris, and he was in charge of all the officials, and he was wicked. One of the things that Haman liked to do was, he says, when I walk around, I want people to kneel and bow down before me as I walk past them. Guess who didn't? Mordecai. He said, no, I'm not bowing down to you. Why would I bow down to you? I'm a Jew. I'm not going to bow down to you. I have one God, and that's who I'll bow down and praise to. Side note on Esther. The book of Esther had been controversial, especially in the canonization of Scripture, because it never mentioned God. God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. And so it stood the test of time in the Old Testament scripture. It stood the test of time in the New Testament. And so it ended up being canonized as the word of God in the Bible along with all the other books. And so hopefully I bring to light a little bit more of why that is. And so Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman. And Haman was like, not only is this a charge against me, and, and I could take care of you, one Jew. He goes, better yet, I'm going to take care of all the Jews. So his plot was, I'm going to pay the king Ahuzeris a lot of money, and then I'm going to send out a decree that in all the territories, we are going to kill all the Jews. Mass murder all over the place. Does this sound familiar in history? Yes. So the Jewish people have not, they've, they've been around a while, okay? They've, they've suffered through a lot of things. And so this is, a, this is just one of the, uh, the instances. And so as Mordecai heard this decree as it went out into uh, his city and all the other provinces, he began to cry and he put on sackcloth and he began to weep and put ash on his head and he was praying and I'll read in uh, Esther, Esther chapter 4. Y'all turn to Esther chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Esther chapter 4, verses 12 through 17.
They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Mordecai told them to, to reply to Esther, Do not drink or do not think to yourself that in the king's place or palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at the time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther told him to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Don't eat or drink for three days or nights. And my young women and also fast as you do. And I will go to the king, though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and he did everything as Esther had ordered him to. So as Mordecai was, was mourning and he was crying and he was praying, he went to Esther and Esther said, look. Oh, he, he gave the message. He says, Esther, um, don't put it past. I know you're queen, but if the king finds out you're a Jew, you're going to die also. And she's like, that's fine. Do this. Tell all the Jews, go and pray, go and fast. Seek God. That's really what the undertone here is. Fast and pray and seek the heart of God in this time. And so they did. And uh, so it, it came about where Esther was able to approach the king. And she found favor in the king at that time. And the king says, Esther, I'm very pleased to see you. I tell you what, I'll grant you anything, even up to half the kingdom, I will give to you. And she says, I tell you what, I want to have a feast. I want to have a banquet. And I want you to invite Haman. I want Haman to be at this banquet with us. And so word went out, and Haman was thinking, this is awesome. And so they brought Haman in, and they said, Haman, we're going to have a feast, and you're invited, and we want you to be here with us. You know? And so Haman, he was like, yes, and he's all pumped. And so as he's leaving, he sees Mordecai by the king's gate again, and guess who doesn't bow again? Mordecai, he's not bowing down. And so Haman's like, he told his officials, he says, I want you to do this. I want you to go and I want you to build a gallow. And I have a picture of a gallow. It's where they hang people. And I want you to build it 75 feet high. And we're going to hang Mordecai where everyone will be able to see him. If he doesn't bow down, we're going to send a message into this, uh, into the city and into the provinces that if you don't bow down, this is what's going to happen to you. And so they built the gallows 75 feet high. So they went and they had the feast. Well, that night, King Ahuzeris, for some reason, he couldn't sleep. And so as he has his insomnia and he's tossing and turning, he's like, I know, I'll read the, the King's Book of Chronicles and I'll just see what's been going on the past few weeks or years. So as he's reading it, he comes across the part where it says that Mordecai had warned him of two people that were going to kill him. And he's like, I remember that. These two guys were going to kill me. He goes, did we ever do anything for that guy? And they're like, no, we never did. We never did, you know, praise him or, or give him anything, reward him. And he says, well, we need to do that. So the next morning, Haman comes into the king's court. And Haman is thinking, hey, I need to approach the king and say, we're going to uh, put Mordecai on the gallows. He didn't bow down. Well, Haman got interrupted. And King Ahuzera said, Hey, I got a question for you. And 
Let's read uh, Esther chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. I got a question for you. So 6, verse 6. Chapter 6, verse 6. Haman, he came in and the king said, What should be done to a man whom the king delights to honor? What should be done to a man who the king wants to honor in front of everyone? And Haman's thinking, hey, this is all about me. And Haman said, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, well, for that man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. And the horse that the king has ridden. I just imagine Haman being like, you know, this really old, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, overweight and like white beard and, you know, he rolls his R's, you know, I don't know. And he's like, bring the royal robe. And, you know, I would just imagine him being that dude, you know. <laughs> and he's like, bring the royal robes that the king has worn and the horse that the king has ridden on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man with the king's delight to honor him. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the king, he said to Haman, verse 10, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. He's like, no, no, man, it's about me. That was all about me. He goes, I was coming to you to kill Mordecai on the gallows, and you're saying we got to put all this stuff that I suggested on Mordecai? Yes, that's where the plot thickens, and that's where it turns. And so they do that. They get Mordecai, they put on the royal robes, he's on the horses, they, they prance him around the city, and they're praising him, you know, and giving him uh, alms or whatever. And then later on, here comes the feast, the banquet. And Haman, he's there, and he's, you know, he's kind of down and out. And so Esther, she finds a way to uh, bring it before the king to say, look, my heart is troubled. There's something that, that just, it's eating me from the inside out, and I can't get past it. And the king's like, look, I will grant you anything, anything you wish, even up to half the kingdom. What is it that is your heart's desire? And Esther, she told the king, Ahuzera, she goes, there's somebody that's trying to wipe my people out. I'm a Jew. And somebody has decreed that to kill all the Jews in all the cities and provinces, and this decree cannot be reversed. And the king says, well, who is it that did this? And she said, it's Haman. Haman did this. And the king, in, in his anger and uproar, he stormed out of the room. Well, Haman goes over to Esther. And, and, and he, and he like is bending down. He's like just pleading for his life. And he falls over the couch as the king walks in. And he thinks that Haman is assaulting his queen. And he says, hang Haman on the gallows that were set for Mordecai. Put him 75 feet up in the air, and you hang him. So that's what happened. Haman was hanged on the gallows. And then the king Ahuzeris, he said, listen, this is what we'll do. We'll write a new decree. Tell the Jews, and we'll give them on that certain day, that particular day that was set, 
that all the Jews were supposed to be murdered, tell them that they can fight, and they can fight back, and we'll give them two days to fight back. Write that and send it into all the cities and all the provinces. And so Esther and her relative Mordecai sat down, and they wrote a letter, and it was sent out in all the provinces and cities in all different languages. And the king even gave Mordecai his signet ring. And he put his signet ring in the wax on all the letters. That's a turn of event right there. And that letter was sent out, and the Jews fought back, and they won. Esther was given Haman's house in the end. Mordecai was given Haman's job. He was the second right-hand man right under the king. And I'll read in chapter 10, verse 3. For Mordecai the Jews was second in rank to the king Ahuzeris, and he was great among the Jews. And he was great among the Jews and popular within the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people. He sought the just the wellness and the well-being of his people, and he spoke peace to all his people. He sought the welfare and good being, and he spoke peace. And that's how that story ends. And you're thinking, well, how does this apply to my life? Well, some final thoughts I have. Number one, God's providence is all throughout this story. The providence of God, God's hand, his workmanship, his planning, and as Troy read earlier today about God's plans and purposes for our life and his children. And we'll find God's providence. So even though God is not mentioned necessarily in the book of of Esther, we see God's workmanship and his providence in this story. How is it that people, that God's people are still here? How is it? It's by God's goodness and by his grace and by his providence. Number one, here's some providence within the story. Vashti's downfall. Vashti refused. Don't you think the Lord had something to do with that? Stubborn heart. And then he brought up Esther in the beauty contest and she won. Two, Esther, she has rank and power to combat Haman's plot. She found out about Haman's plot. Well, who was there right next to the king to say, I can do something about this? It was Esther. She was right next to the king. The king wasn't godly. He wasn't seeking the heart of God. But guess who was? Esther. She was there. She was in the presence of the ungodly. Number three, King Ahuzeris' insomnia. He couldn't sleep one night. So what did he do? He read his king's chronicles. He read some stories about himself and what was going on. Why could he not sleep? And why would he pick that book up to read? Right? The providence of God. Haman falls on Esther, pleading for his life, right as the king Ahuzeris walks in the room. He's pleading for his life, and it just looks bad. It looks like he's assaulting her. And from that, Haman was out of the picture. Security for Mordecai and the Jews, that they can fight, and they can fight back, and they will be saved. That's God's providence. That was the king trusting Esther and Mordecai to send that out. And six... Esther, in dire need of salvation for herself and Mordecai and God's people, she tells them to fast and to pray. That's God's providence. Just being pressed in her heart to pray. The ESV uh, Bible has a commentator, and I love how he put this. He stated, even when God seems hidden 
or silent, not mentioned in Esther at all. God is still present and he's working to protect and preserve his people. That's God's providence. Two, serving where you are. At this time in history, it seems very unpopular to be a Christian. Kind of does, right? The Bible has some very, um, some harsh ways to identify sin. We'll just say that. And we're, it just seems like so many people are so afraid, I don't want to offend anybody. I'm, I don't need to say that because I might offend somebody. Now, some of you might not care. You know, I kind of dig that. But we're just so afraid of, of offending anybody. But However, when we read in the Gospels, Jesus, he offended people. What he said was not popular, but some people absolutely loved him and they followed him and they gave their life for him for that. And so at this time that we live in, it's, it's, not, it's kind of a negative view to even be a Christian. But guys, listen, we don't live, live to be a Christian because we think uh, our mommy and daddy taught us well, because pastor says so, because so-and-so said so. It's because of the Word of God, and it's changed our life in every aspect. It has changed our life. And no, a lot of the things that are written in these words are not that popular. Some people think that they're full of hate. But I'm telling you, they're written, and there are some things to live by. And there are sins mentioned. And it's not us hating. It's us living for a holy God. Remember, God hates sin. But he loved you. And he loved me. And we're sinners. And he loved us. And he hates the sin. There are two people, and this is where I don't want you to see this as like crazy political, but we'll just throw this up and get it out of the way. All right? There are two people right now in, in an ungodly place. And I'm not putting these two guys on a pedestal like they have it all together. I'm not. One is the, pres- the vice president-elect. One of the first things that he said, and like we never really heard of him, just a few months ago and he came up and he goes I'm a Christian you don't have to read any more than that the first thing he says I'm a Christian I'm a conservative I'm a Republican I don't care if he's a Republican or what I don't, it doesn't matter to me it doesn't the first thing he said I'm a Christian and let's just go in that order that's what he said we'll go in that order I'm a Christian well guess what this Christian is going to be in office in an ungodly place. <laughs> I, know, I know, right? <laughs> and he needs our prayer. He really does. Why is it that we're still here? Because God keeps putting Christians in these places that are not godly. Now, is he going to make all the right decisions? I don't know. That's what we have to pray for him about. The next guy, his name's Robert Aderholt. I know him. His dad was my mom's pastor. And he's been a pastor for 40, 50 years. And he's a bivocational pastor. Small town, Hackleburg. Very small town. And within that small town, he pastored a church of just, I don't know, 30, 40 people. And I saw my cousins, they went to that church. They were baptized there. They were saved and baptized. This is his son, Robert Aderholt. Well, 
his dad not only was the pastor, but he was also a district judge for over 30 years. And so Robert was brought up into wealth and prosperity. But they still went to this tiny little church in Hackleburg, and they still worshipped with all these little farm people, you know, and, and hunters and fishermen and everything. And that's Robert. And he's a Christian. And he's in Congress. Does he have it all together? He probably doesn't. Just being honest. I can't stand before you from this pulpit and tell you that I have it all together because I don't. But God, he raises people up that love him and he puts them in these ungodly places to have some kind of influence. Why? Because God in his providence is not done with us. He's not. He loves us and he loves his people. He loves his children. And therefore, he puts godly people in the darkness. And this is our question. It says, so serving where you are, where are you at? Where is it that you go? Let's just kind of break it down. You can take it off those. I know y'all don't want to focus on Congress or whatever this morning, but where are you at? Where is it that you go on a daily basis and the people that you're in contact with? Are you a light? Am I a light in a dark place? We're in Flint, Michigan. This isn't the Bible Belt. It's not. Not everybody that you know goes to church. Not everybody that you know even claims to go to church up here. And so how is it that that God can raise us up personally to be a light where we are for his people? Who knows? I mean, I I don't know how the, the influence of Esther and Mordecai had on the king, but I know they had a lot of influence within that palace. So, and lastly, we have to think about prayer. One of the main things in the time of distress was prayer. And Esther says, I want you to do this. Pray and fast for three days. Find out where God's heart is. And Esther 4.14, we're going to close with this. Esther chapter 4, verse 14, and this is such a popular verse, and I love it. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house, you'll perish. And who knows whether you not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows? You can stay silent. You don't have to tell people that you're a Christian. I don't have to tell people that I'm a Christian. We don't. We can be silent and go about our business. But who knows? Maybe God puts you where you are for such a time as this. To show the love. There is no better time right now for Christians not to take a political stand, not necessarily. If they want to and so choose to, that's fine. But just to show kindness and to be generous. That's important. To show the love of Christ. So guys, this week, I want you to focus on this. How can you, at where you're at on your daily routine, how can you show the love of Christ? And how can I show the love of Christ? By our generosity and by our kindness and by our words 
and by prayer. People need prayer. And if God has called us to be prayer warriors, then pray for people. Amen? Cool. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you. Why are we still here? It's because you're not done with us. Why is it that we have the families and the church that we have? It's because you're not done with us. God, we thank you that you're not done with us. So God, give us courage. Give us integrity. And God, most of all, God, I just pray that you give us your plan and your purpose for our life so that people see your love, they see your generosity, and we can give you all the praise and the glory for that. In the name of Jesus, all his people says, amen.